0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good to see you all. Great to be out and about here in this technically eastern North Carolina. Can we say we're in the eastern part of the state? All right. I didn't know where the dividing line was, so I didn't want to offend somebody and make a comment about it being... Eastern part of the Low Country or whatever. It's good to be with you all night, as Justin says. I've known him and Caitlin nine years, ten years thereabout. It's getting kind of scary. You're getting old. I had more hair and it was different color back then than it is now. But I've known him for a while. But not in addition to being a professor, I'm also a pastor. I do this bivocationally. I pastor a church there in Charleston been doing so for six years this time, so I've got about 16 years, I think, now, of bivocational pastoring experience. I don't know how to not be a pastor and something else at the same time. And so a lot of what makes my heart beat, both in these kind of studies tonight, but also even at school, is how do we bring all this stuff together? You know, we're doing it for the church, ultimately, You and training students. Not so they'll all go be pastors. Most will not be. Not training them so they'll be missionaries, or that would be great if they would be. But in one sense, my ministry is greater than all that. I've got now, after 10 and almost 11 years of teaching, thousands of students around the world who've hopefully taken some of the better ideas I've had and taken them with them and shared them where they're at. And so what I'm doing tonight is something I've done similarly in my own church and a couple other churches here in South Carolina as well, and even as far west as Missouri. And that's to help us start thinking through, why are we even Baptists? And what started this years ago was I kept running into people who'd want to join my church, and you'd ask them why, and why specifically a Baptist church, and the answer you often get is, well, I was born a Baptist. No, you weren't. (laughs) We're, We're not Catholics. You're not born this way. This is not a disease that you inherited from your parents. There's a reason for being a Baptist. That's not it. I don't know if you have the problem here in Wilson. We have in Charleston is the problem that many people in our community church hop from denomination to denomination. There'll be Assembly of God for a while, then they'll go be non-denominational, then they'll come Southern Baptist for a while, and they'll bounce around. And one day, one of my friends, who's a retired pastor now, took me aside and he said, we need to talk, all right? I got to ask you a question, okay? Wrong thing always ask me what my opinion is, because I have one. I said, just let it go. And he said, why do you think we're getting so many charismatics in our church? and I asked him what he meant, and he explained a little bit, and I said, "Uh, that's easy. He said, all right. I said, because your worship is no different than anybody else's, and they're not listening to you. When we all sing the same songs, which is not necessarily bad, the average person, at least seems to be in Charleston, picks their churches based on music styles. And so long as they're all the same, they can jump around from place to place. And so what he had was a church that went from a couple hundred to 700 But he had a church that probably really wasn't that Baptist after all. It was Baptist in name only. And so my conviction is, is the name of this whole series is, not just tonight's talk, is, you know, it's about being more than in name. It's what does it really mean to be a Baptist? Specifically thinking through a category of thought we use in the academic world, Baptist distinctives. You try to type it into your computer, it'll kick it back as an error. It says it's not not a concept. But what it is that makes us unique amongst all the Christians in the world, you know, I'm not one of these Baptists who says no other people are Christian except for Baptists. There are those I often refer to as accidental Christians in other places. They know just enough to be saved and not really enough to be whatever it is they say they are. That's a lot of our folks. Now, you all have just been through the covenant process. I know you're working through a lot of these issues. So maybe has done a better job discipling you than a lot of pastors, but a lot of our folks are in our churches, are members. They sit next to us and really don't know why. They like you. They like Justin. They like the location. They like the worship style. And they're no more intentionally Baptist than I'm intentionally male. It just happened. And so I hope to kind of correct some of that for you tonight. So you'll need your Bible. I'm going to call on some folks as readers unless you want to volunteer here in a bit. But need your Bible. If you got the handout from Greed on the way in, you can follow along there also. If you miss a blank, don't hesitate to raise your hand if you're one of those people who can't stand to move forward without everything filled in. But if you're one of those people who's afraid to raise your hand and ask, come up afterward. I'll leave it on the podium, and you can look at my iPad for the notes, and you'll be good to go. But talking about what it is that makes us Baptist so that when things go tough, you still remain Baptist. You don't get that mad and go be a Pentecostal or a Presbyterian for a while instead that I am intentionally, and I hope you are as well, intentionally Baptist. Now, one of the first things that I think we need to think through is bigger picture. I didn't realize it was an issue. I was in the army years ago in a previous lifetime. I was an army ranger. So I've invaded a piece of property not far from here many times via airplane. I didn't know it was an issue. I was young and dumb, didn't know the difference. But I had a person who came to our church where I'm currently at. His wife was our pianist. She was a member. He was not because he taught Sunday school at another church and refused to leave, was convinced they wouldn't have Sunday school apparently without him, but made the comment one day to the effect, I said, you know what? That's the reason why we're Baptists. And he says, we're not Baptists. He says, I'm a Baptist, but I'm not a Protestant. And I said, what do you mean you're not a Protestant? Now, he's from Louisiana, and I don't know if you know people from Louisiana, right? They're on all those TV shows, right? They wrestle alligators, They all kinds of strange things. They're really that way. And I said, what do you mean you're not a Protestant? He goes, I'm not a Protestant. He says, I'm a Baptist. And I said, you know, don't you, that you have to be Protestant to be a Baptist. And his response was, well, I'm not protesting anything. Oh well, you're protesting at the moment but set that aside. Either you're Catholic with parentheses or Eastern Orthodox or you're a Protestant. I said there's a reason why we had a reformation 500 years ago. These are not insignificant differences between Catholics and Protestants. And so if you're a Baptist, hopefully you are a Protestant and that you understand those five basic tenets. Those five things that make us Protestants first. You know, if you think of the big umbrella, there's all Christians. Big part of that underneath that umbrella are Protestants, and we're Protestants for these five reasons. Again, I'm sure Justin has talked about all these at some point along the way, but we adhere to these five tenets, the five solas, as they're referred to, and the key one is sola scriptura. That is, we believe in the Bible alone as our sole authority. In fact, I'm going to make a statement tomorrow morning at 8.15 or so in my class I'm teaching that I'm convinced that had the Protestant Reformation kept going the direction it could have gone in, they would have become Baptists, every one of them. We're the logical outcome of it, that if you're going to do what they say they did and believe what they say they believed, you have to end up where we're at. Now, are we perfect? No, because we went sideways also. But it all begins with this notion of the Bible alone. We're not bowing to the Pope. Now, I don't mean bowing in worship, though Catholics do bow to him, perhaps some in that sense. But remember, in Catholic theology, they hold to multiple authorities. They hold to the Bible. Talk to a good Catholic, they're going to tell you, I believe the Bible. But they hold to the Bible through the lens of the church. That is, whatever the church says that passage means, that's what it means. And so not only is the Bible authoritative, it's actually the Bible as interpreted by the church that's authoritative. And so therein comes in the Pope. Luther rightly pointed out, he said, "Um, how can you say the Pope is the answer? Well, he's the answer. He's authoritative. Luther said, what happens when you had three Popes at one time? And there was a time in history when they had three Popes at the same time. Which one's authoritative? And so the Protestant reformers said, no, it's got to be Scripture alone. And so as Baptists, we hold to this tenet, and we believe that God has spoken in many ways, the writer of Hebrews says, right, in times past through the prophets, most extensively, most completely through Christ, but also add a couple other terms here to it. He has spoken to us authoritatively that what the Bible says, we must do, right? Lots of people say they believe the Bible, but don't do the Bible, right? You know, Jesus said very clearly if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so since we're afraid of showing we don't really love him, we just don't read his commands. That way, when we don't do them, we go, I didn't know that was there. But we believe it speaks authoritatively. What the Bible says we must do, and we must do it as the Bible suggests. The Protestants suggested a notion of what is called the regulative principle. The Bible regulates what we do. We can do whatever the Bible commands. In fact, we ought to do that. And many of them expand and said, and we can do whatever the Bible commends. If the Bible seems to suggest something is good, even if it didn't explicitly say to do it, that's doable. But the regular principle also says, when the Bible says, don't do it, what's the answer? You don't do it. End of story, move on. And so there are some things that just don't go. You know, I ask my students every semester when I teach Old Testament, does God care how we worship? And the first answer is, well, sure he does. And then you dig a little deeper, and really what they say is, no, he doesn't. Until you point out in Scripture that God killed people for worshiping him ways that he didn't command. Think of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who died offering strange fire, the King James Bible used to say. Think of Uzzah, who reached up and touched the Ark of the Covenant when it was about to fall off a cart. Think of uh, Sapphira and his wa- or her husband when they wanted to give money to the church but they were doing it for the wrong motives. And so God does care. And if he cares, he's going to tell us what? That's the idea that he tells us authoritatively. We also believe he speaks truthfully in scripture. That is, the Bible is, to use Southern Baptist terms, inerrant, without error. But we mean not only does it not contain no errors, but what it does speak is the truth. That it is meant to be understood as this is God's word it is accurate in all that it says not just what it says about spiritual matters if some people want to divide it right they want to say it's truthful here but it's not truthful over here that it's truthful when it talks about spiritual matters but we know that history has changed things that's no no protestants have historically said when the bible says it that's the truth And so we read it open-minded, believing that we don't have to discern what's false from what's true, that it's every word is true in it. Even when they quote the pagans, for example, Paul does with Cicero in Acts 17, he does so truthfully, not only quoting Cicero correctly, but he does so in a way that is beneficial to us spiritually. And so it is there for us to read and to trust. We might add that God has spoken to the Bible or through the Bible mercifully. That is, God wants to be known. In fact, it's the whole idea of revelation, right? Not the book, but the whole Bible as the revelation of God, that God wants to be known. And so he's revealed himself. And he's done so, not merely so we go, wow, isn't he great? He's done so that we might know who he is, what he wants, and then we might approach him how he determines so that we might be restored into his fellowship. That's mercy. Think about it, your reading scripture is actually a gift from God. And the Protestants fought for it and died for it so that you could read it in your language. You know, think about the fact that many of us have Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles at home or on your phone that we don't read. Statistically, it used to be less than 50% of American Christians read their Bible once a week. Less than 50 once a week. My suspicion is the 1% who, or the other 50 who were saying they were reading it once a week were probably reading it on Sunday morning when the pastor said, Open your Bibles. And so here we are. We've got God's gift to us, Him revealing Himself so that we might know Him, and we're not listening. His is an act of mercy, ours is an act of rebellion. And then we could add to that that God has spoken finally. What I mean there is His word is the end. What he says goes, it's the end of the discussion, and that he's not going to add any more to it. It's what sometimes referred to as the scriptures are closed, right? Revelation chapter 22, John says, anybody who takes away will be cursed, anybody who adds to it will be cursed. Jesus talks about the fact that not any bit of it is going to pass until the end. Every jot and every tittle remains. Somebody shows up and says, hey, I've got a revelation from God, Try not to cringe visibly, but listen, they might be speaking a word of truth into your life, but it better line up a scripture, in which case all they're doing is merely reiterating to you what God has already revealed. If they claim, as some do, they've got a new word from God, don't cringe, run away. And there are entire denominations that claim to have new revelation from God, and in fact, Mormonism adds to it what? An entire another book. Here's the new word from God. No, the Bible says this is it. It's one and done. Now we deal with what he has revealed to us. Even when we admit it hadn't necessarily answered all of our questions that we would like answered. When you're looking at the Bible and you struggle going, where's this at? And I can't find an answer to the second coming or this or that. If nothing else, fall back on my favorite verse, Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine there Moses writes, he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some some things God just has not revealed to us. He doesn't have to tell you what he thinks on every issue. And so the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But Moses adds, the things that have been revealed belong to us and our sons that we might obey forever. And so there are good questions to ask, but those that must be answered, God has answered the rest, ponder them, think about them, and then accept the fact that God has said, you can't handle the truth. And the mic drop, and he walks away. And so God has spoken finally. Now let's think about this for just a few more minutes, and we've got to kind of move on. This idea that God's word is sufficient, that it's all we need in terms of the spiritual life, in terms of understanding what God wants, as He wants us to know or to respond to. And so, number of passages there for you. A few of them you might be familiar with. A few you may go, that's the passage. You've heard it said, but never found it. Now here, hopefully, maybe you'll find something there. First one there is that this idea that God's word is sufficient to accomplish God's purposes. Has anybody already found Isaiah 55, 10, and 11? Go, ahead, go for it. Read it out loud. loud. It's the old God's Word never returns null and void, that it does what it's supposed to do. I'm sure Justin would tell you this as a preacher. For me, that's the greatest assurance I've got when I stand up in the pulpit to preach, is that my job is to put it out there to explain it as clearly as I can. God's going to handle the rest. And so I've done my job. I was asked years ago by a member of my second church, well, isn't it heartbreaking and frustrating that week after week you preach your heart out no one gets saved? and I said, are you implying it's my job to save them? He said, no, but you... you. I said, no, it's... my job isn't to convert. My job is to preach. It's the job of the Spirit to convert. He's going to use the Word to do that, and so it is sufficient for God's purposes. Timothy's going to tell us there, among other places, that it's sufficient for evangelism. You know, many of you, I'm looking across the room, and I see some gray hairs, Many of you have probably been trained in evangelism techniques, right? Do it this way. Don't do it that way. Some of you are old school enough, dare I say, because I'm there, that you've been trained you must memorize this plan. And it's remember these four points. Remember these ten verses. Remember these three questions. And it's all this method. The methods themselves aren't bad. They scare people off. I know people who won't do evangelism because they don't know the method. You know, my conviction is if you know the gospel enough to be saved, you know enough to lead somebody else's salvation, but it's sufficient for evangelism. We don't need neat tricks. God's word can bring these things about. Does somebody have 2 Timothy there, 3, 14, and 15? Go for it. make you wise for salvation. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. The words, right? Romans 10, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they believe in whom someone does not preach to them? So sufficient for evangelism. Other stuff is gravy. This is the meat. Sufficient for sanctification. Psalm 119.11. Many of you might have this one memorized in part or in whole. Anybody know this one off the top of your head? Anybody got it handy? Go for it. Yeah, the old King James, thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You know, we don't have to wear a rubber bracelet, says, What would Jesus do? If we read the Bible, we know what he did. And we're called to be like him to do what he did. And so, sufficient for sanctification. In fact, Paul goes a little further in 2 Timothy and says, it's sufficient for all areas of Christian living. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we know it is usually the passage defining and defending scripture, but we often miss the reason for scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God, and so that's its nature, breathed out by God, and it's profitable, valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then verse 17 is the because statement. Notice how it begins in the English Bible, if you have it in front of you, that, or you could add the word so, so that. It's powerful and profitable for all those things for this reason, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's sufficient for Christian living. All that God intends for us to be is herein contained. And so, sola scriptura, that one we seem many have forgotten. Sola Christus, the idea that it is Christ alone. It's in Christ alone. Again, Catholics wouldn't have disagreed in principle on that alone. But ultimately, if you listen to their theology, particularly their medieval Catholicism, as you listen to them speak, they believe in Christ alone with my help. They believed in the Christ alone with the church's contribution and so forth. And so Luther and the Protestant reformers said, wait a minute, what does scripture say? If scripture is our standard, what does it really say? And the answer is Christ alone, that he is, as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 5, 3, the center of our faith. It's not the church. As great as the church is, the church exists for him, not vice versa. So he's to be the center of our faith, the thoughts, our love, our desires. Likewise, he, not the church, is the mediator of our faith. He is the reason I can go directly to the Father, not through a father. They were trying to draw this distinction. The church had added layers to a curtain that Christ had already torn apart. He was clarifying what they were doing. When they made the case for the mediator, they wanted to make sure they understood that he had already satisfied God's wrath. Much in Catholic theology in the Middle Ages was, here's what you must do, right? Go and do, not confession, that's not the actual sacrament, go and do penance, go tell the priest what you've done so that he can give you something to do so that you might satisfy God's wrath on this issue, and the prime reformers going, no, it's what he's already done. When Jesus says from the cross, it is, what's the word? Finished. It's over. There's nothing you can add to it, nor is there anything else Jesus needs to do, like being sacrificed every time we take the, the sacrament now. And they wanted to make sure that we understood that Christ sacrificed himself on our behalf. This one's a little closer to home for a lot of us. Set aside Catholic theology from that day, many of us, when you ask, why did Jesus die on the cross? And we turn it to making it about us. Remember, as the Bible portrays it, it's all about God, right? And that Christ came here, according to John, in the upper room and died to glorify God. He didn't do it because he was lonely. He didn't do it because God needed worshipers. All that other stuff comes secondary that Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf. But he did it. His life was not taken from him. He laid it down, ultimately to give the glory and honor to the Father. And by so doing then, he is our substitute. Again, most Christians, Protestant. Catholic, Greek would all agree in principle with that idea, but for a lot, that becomes very offensive, especially when you read Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant passage. As you get into it, you're the sinner. He took your stripes. He took on your sins. Because of you, he was beaten. And sometimes we kind of want to play down that side of the equation anymore, don't we? I was watching a, um, how do I say this nicely? It's really hard. A TV speaker this morning, I'm loath to use the word preacher. On TV, preaching to look like 20 or 30,000 people. Start filling in the blanks. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Really pleasant looking young fellow, friendly, smiles a lot. He's talking about the gospel, and never once has he mentioned Christ's sacrifice, death, or your sins. He talks about fulfillment and making you so that you can be all that you're supposed to be. And he skips the heart of the gospel, right? Remember the old Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, buried, and on the third day resurrected. Sometimes we relegate all that stuff to Easter and it's to our shame. So sometimes we need to be reminded we're Protestants. Sola gratia is one that I would trust you are familiar with. It's the idea that this is all by grace alone. We talk about grace all the time, amazing grace. It's many of our favorite song. We even have a pretty textbook definition of it, right? you been in church long enough, most of you, I'm sure, you know, what's the right answer from any question from the pulpit? Jesus. You ask, what's the definition of grace? It's always going to be some variation of the unmerited or undeserved favor or gift of God. All that is true. But so often is what happens when we say things too much, if you can say grace too much, when we say it so often, we kind of blunt the effect of it after a while. We just know it, right? It's like watching violence on TV. After a while, you're no longer really surprised by it. You're no longer shocked by it. Remember 9-11 and how they kept playing the video over and over? That first week, I could close my eyes and see the second plane repeatedly. Today, you know what? I can watch the video and turn the channel and not even think about it anymore. And so often in church, we say things like, Amazing Grace, so often we don't think about the fact of what this all really means for us and to us. And so the Protestants were helpful in reminding us and correcting the Catholic church that man does not deserve salvation. The wages of sin is not salvation. What's the wages? Death. And this is what Paul says we already are in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were, he says, speaking to Christians, to remind them where they're at. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Not one day you will die. You're already spiritually there. You deserve nothing but the second death apart from the grace of God. You can't earn salvation. Dead people don't give dead people CPR. You can't please God as a sinner too many verses to quote. I give you one in the handout there, too many to look at. I often liken the analogy to, if you go into an operating room that is truly sterile, as soon as they wheel you in, guess what? It ain't. It's no longer sterile. I don't know about you. As soon as I touch something, it's ruined. Now, I might be able to fool you. You know, I've gotten into woodworking this summer. as a good diversion to the rest of my life. Everybody, ooh, and ah. And I know every little blemish, every little crack, every little paint stroke has got a drop in it. That's us spiritually. No matter what we touch, we don't have the Midas touch. We've got the reverse Midas touch. And so you can't earn your own salvation. God is not waiting for you to do something to be good enough because ultimately you won't. Thus, we really end up with this idea that God saves simply because of grace alone, and of course, Ephesians two again. Follow that whole passage, Ephesians two one through ten. It starts about how you're dead in sins. Then the most powerful three-letter word in the Bible comes at the beginning of verse four. Does somebody have that one, or have that one memorized? But you were dead, following the course of this world, the powers, of the parents, the powers of the air. You're all that. But in spite of that. But God has made us alive together with Christ and seated with him in the holy places. That's grace. When you deserve nothing but this, God offers you that instead. So grace alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. Fide is where we get the word fidelity. Somebody who is faithful or infidelity, unfaithful. Older generation, we all remember back when you used to be excited because you get a car and if you paid for the upgrade, you could get a stereo that had (laughs) hi-fi, right? High fidelity. It was high level of faithfulness to what it would have sounded like in person. Younger generation, of course, they don't even know this is what it means, but Wi-Fi is wireless fidelity. The what I send is transmitted faithfully to the recipient. And so that's where we get the idea, this idea of faith alone is from the word "fide." Again, we say it so often that it becomes trite almost to us, but the Reformers reminded us powerfully, we're saved by faith alone in, you could put through there instead of in, if you don't like that particular preposition, in Christ alone. In other words, faith is not a work, it's in the completed works of Christ. The Puritans, I think, did a better job explaining this maybe than later Protestants have, They would often speak of faith as a resting in or a trusting. Instead of doing something, it's actually the antithesis of doing something. It's stopping. I use the analogy often. Some of you have been trained as lifeguards. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the analogy of somebody drowning. So long as the person who is drowning is trying to save himself, what will he do to everybody who comes to help? He'll drown you. Years ago when I lived in St. Louis, there was a church group. Probably most of whom could not swim, would be my guess. They were in a very shallow river. We could wade across most of it. Upstream was a rainstorm they didn't know. Just like with the storm here recently, the wall of water came down. Next thing you know, one of them swept out into the deeper part of the river, can't swim. One goes out to help him. Another one. They lost from one youth group seven people in one day. One, probably he can't swim, trying to help another who can't swim. What are the lifeguards, are they trained to do instead? And it sounds cold and morbid. What are they told to do? Wait. Wait till they quit. Wait till they've given up hope. The older generation, remember the old cartoons going down once, twice, three times? Wait till they're dead almost then you can rescue them without killing yourself in the process. Faith alone says you've got to admit you can't help yourself and quit fighting. This idea that Americans, you know, Christianity, we're saved by our, you know, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's not only not true, it's unhelpful to boot. So long as we think we can help ourselves, we won't. And so faith is not a work. Biblically speaking, faith precedes works. This is the correct, the Catholic idea that I must do this with Christ or for Christ to be saved. The biblical picture is it precedes works. Again, Ephesians 2, Paul walking through salvation. You've been saved by grace through faith. Then what does he add, by the way? And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Comes before works. But it always This is what our Catholic brothers and sisters can't hear us saying. They hear us say it's not by works, and they think, oh, well, you don't believe in doing good works. No, we want them in a proper order that the Bible has revealed. Faith always produces works. You could look at James, the famous passage, right? I'll show you my faith by my works. But you still see that in Paul in Ephesians 2.10. It says we've been saved to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand. He's saving us to that end, not because of that end. And so it's going to produce those good works. But don't forget, it's not a work itself. It's a resting in depending on leaning on Christ. I don't know about where some of you grew up in the church. I grew up in a very traditional, almost fundamentalist Baptist church that separated the Old Testament from the New Testament. In fact, I don't know that he ever preached the Old Testament. One of my favorite preachers, John MacArthur, doesn't for this very reason. They believe the Old Testament was God's plan of salvation for the Jews. The New Testament is God's plan of salvation for us, or the parentheses. And one day he'll do something different again to get the Jews in the seven-year tribulation. But as you read scripture, God has always saved people by faith. And the example I give you there is the story of Abraham. This is the example Paul gives in Romans and Galatians. There, God has come back to Abraham a second time with covenant language, he expands the covenant for Abraham, doesn't replace it, just tells him more about it. And it says, go out and count the stars, count the grain of the sands. You're all familiar with the passage. And then it says in 15 verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord. He didn't believe the message. He believed the messenger, right? He trusted God to be truthful. He believed the Lord, and it says it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God, and because of that, God then imputed, literally what is the idea of counted, gave him righteousness. That is salvation by faith alone in the Old Testament. And then the writer of Hebrews, of course, picks that up in the so-called hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and walks through all the saints. By faith, he did this. By faith, he did that. By faith. Faith has always been the answer, either a forward-looking to the cross faith or a backward-looking to the cross faith. But it's always been by faith. It's not very ego-building for us to realize God does it because of somebody else's works, but it's the biblical picture. And the picture is, it is faith that still saves today. That's what we're looking for. No other. We don't want to go back to before the Reformation. And so faith still saves. Romans 3 is a great place to study that. Fifth sola, Sola Deo Gloria, That is, it is for God's glory alone, for God's glory alone. This is the epiphanal moment for me in my theological journey. Everybody's got one, some book you read, some sermon you heard, maybe a song that you sang one day at church, and light bulbs go off all around, right? The bells and whistles, and all of a sudden you go, that was the moment. I'd already been called to ministry or whatever that looked like. I didn't know at the time what it was going to be. I'd already left my job in advertising, moved my family in my mid-30s from St. Louis to Louisville for seminary. I was already finishing my college degree, getting ready to start my master's degree. Heard John Piper preaching chapel one day at Southern Seminary. I'd never heard of John Piper. I drew up apparently a sheltered life because all the young people knew who he was. I just, you know, when you're in the army, you lose a decade of your life or whatever. I just... I was catching up on lots of the world I missed. I was intrigued by his message, so I went to the bookstore to buy a book by John Piper. Oh, there's one in the new rack. I bought it, took it. Turned out it was a book by John Piper. Half of it was his words. Half was him explaining Jonathan Edwards' words. Took me about three weeks to work through the 90 pages from Piper took me the rest of the summer to read through the other half of the book and kind of get what he's arguing for. But the basic gist of the whole book that he was working with, the title of it is, The End for Which God Created the Universe. Why did God create in the first place? And in it, Edwards ultimately argues everything God does. God does first and foremost for his own glory. I'd heard all kinds of other things, right? God wanted heaven, right? We sing a popular song. I don't know if you all sing it. But, you know, God couldn't imagine heaven without us is one of the really popular songs right now. Yeah, he could. (laughs) He had heaven without us for forever. (laughs) We have made it such a man-centered faith. And it was that moment, that aha, that wait a minute, everything God does is first and foremost for his glory. All of a sudden, that explains why did God create the universe? The purpose of that book. That explains all of a sudden why there's a hell. That explains why do bad things happen to good people. We often want the answers, and the Bible doesn't often give us those answers. You know, why did it happen to Job? Go back and reread Job. Does Job ever find out why? No, in fact, Job demanded an answer. What did God tell him? Stand up and answer my questions, and I'll answer yours. And Job's answer is: never mind. But God didn't let him off the hook. He went at him again for another chapter and a half. Job, what's your answer, son? Forgetting that, just (laughs) it's all for God's glory. We need to turn that attention back to Him. And as you read Scripture, you see the Bible talks about a God-centered creation. Somebody got the Romans eleven passage handy. I know we've not looked at Scripture a little bit, but Romans eleven thirty three to thirty six. It's a good place to occasionally take a detour. Romans 11. Somebody, I hear Bibles. Go for it. a pretty all-inclusive statement at the end, isn't it? Everything is about his glory. We get the benefit, the fringe benefit, if you will, of observing it with new eyes to see that, to appreciate it and recognize it and to relish it. And so it's a God-centered creation from beginning to end. The Bible presents a picture of a God-centered humanity. Isaiah 43 It's a passage about them being in exile, which hadn't even happened yet. God one day would bring them back. And he says, one day I want to call them from the north, south, east, and west, the people whom I have saved and whom I have created for my own glory. God does it all for his glory. We get the side benefit. The Proverbs 16.4 passage also speaks of the other side of the coin, God's purposes for the wicked. This is Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. But of course, what's the ultimate purpose? God's glory. So we're looking for a God-centered view of humanity. We're looking for a God-centered view of salvation. Read all of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Seven times in that passage, is one sentence in the Greek. I'm sure you all have heard that before. Verses 3 to 14, Paul gets on a run. He just can't stop. He's like one of those, like one of those kids on TV shows. I won't tell you the specific gender because they usually make fun of one gender with it. But they talk a thousand miles an hour and never take a breath. And they're telling a the story, and you get tired listening. That's Paul in that sentence. And in that sentence, he talks about the role of God in salvation. He talks about the role of Christ in salvation. He talks about the role of the spirit in salvation. But in that one sentence, seven times Paul says that God does what he does for his own glory. One way or another, he always comes back to this idea that God did it for himself. The Bible talks about a God centered life There's living to God, living our lives in such a way that we honor and glorify God in all that we do there. Again, look up that passage later for yourself, see if I'm reading it correctly. But not only this life, the next life as well. There's this picture in the scripture of a God-centered existence. Our entire being from now into eternity, all about God's glory. And in fact, that's the picture of Revelation, isn't it? And when you read Revelation 4 and the passage in the throne room, what are the elders and the creatures all doing? Falling down and worshiping. And they're singing, shh. Don't let some of our friends know a new song (laughs) and a new song and a new song. The picture is the more you learn about God, the more you've got to sing about. Singing is not about singing what you like. Singing is about reflecting what you've learned and returning back to God, the glory for that bit of information. And so the new song will be ongoing for all of eternity because every day you'll learn something new and have something new to sing about so God-centered eternity. So we are Protestants. We've stayed there longer than we need to, but that's where our roots are at. Can't be a Baptist without being a Protestant. But we are Baptists, and there are certain things we believe also that now start distinguishing us from the bigger umbrella of Protestants. and Protestantism, Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, some other groups, there's some wide variations in there, some of which I suggest might Imply that there are less Christians under the umbrella than we think. For example, Baptists, we make much of regenerate church membership. The passage I mentioned in the handout there is from Acts chapter 2, the picture of the day of Pentecost. Brothers, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And so he connects repentance, faith, with baptism, not because the second one saves you, but because the first one did. And so we understand as that passage unfolds then, as you get to verse 41, it says, as many as received the word, believe what Peter said, were baptized that day, and God added to the church about 3,000 souls. So faith, then the baptism, and the church membership. And so unlike many denominations, we hold that the church is populated, the church itself, by believers. In fact, that's what the word church means. It's the assembly, the gathering of the saints, not the Aints. They're welcome. We hope they come. We hope they received warmly. We pray that they hear the gospel clearly. But Sunday morning isn't about them first, it's about the saints worshiping and praising the God they actually know. And so we believe in regenerate church membership. As you read the rest of that passage, verse 42 to 47, he describes for us what the early church did. It says that they devoted themselves to several things, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking breaking of bread. I break it down. I oversimplify it. For the sake of our time, it's probably just as well I do here. But I think you can break down the mission of the church into three categories. Everything you do here at Redemption ought to be under one of these three, at least one. Better yet, if it's under two, or if you can accomplish all three, but I think biblically, drawing from the pictures there in a few, or Acts 2, you see these three showing up. We're to be about discipleship. I don't mean in the old Southern Baptist tradition, discipleship, of what you do on Sunday night at 7 o'clock, right? You whip out the latest, greatest Bible board or Sunday school or Lifeway, whatever name we're going with, their latest material. But what does Jesus command us to do in Matthew 28? Go make disciples. So under discipleship is a lot of stuff. It is evangelism, but it is also teaching them, Jesus says, to obey all that I've commanded. And so discipleship ought to be the driving focus for a lot of the things we do. Very often, though, the fact that we have this kind of talk tonight means there's not a lot of discipleship going on in a lot of churches. We might be making disciples in terms of converts, but we're not doing a very good job with them after we get them. We get them wet, and then we get on down to the next person. And I'm not against numbers. Numbers are a healthy way to measure certain things in church life. But if all we're doing is getting them in the door, we didn't get them done. And so discipleship is more. We're also going to be about worship, right? we got God-centered thing. Now, maybe you want to put worship first. I put it second because the lost don't worship. The lost can sing a song and mean something entirely different than you when you sing it. That's why so many songs today, I don't know what you all do here, so I'm not criticizing or applauding. That's why a lot of churches sing secular music in their churches. Because we can go, oh, well, this is about us singing to Jesus. And I'm going, yeah, but for the person next to you, it's about singing about their boyfriend. And so we got a lot of folks who think of Jesus as their boyfriend. The way to fix that is discipleship. But the way to prevent that is to make sure we remember It's about worship. Who is God? What is he like? What has he done? And then, and here, finally, Baptist, right? It's about fellowship. But fellowship is about more than eating. Ooh, the nerve, right? Justin, don't ever invite him back ever again. We do really good feeding our people. Imagine you all are the same way right? You get a visitor, you talk to them. Hey, you're new to the area. Hey, what what are you doing? Let's go to Waffle House afterwards. If you love Jesus, you wouldn't take them there, but is that what we're reading? Okay. (laughs) But it's about more than that. It's about loving each other, right? Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's all fellowship. It's about being the family together. And so when we gather, we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing right now? Where does it fit? I would argue, hopefully we're doing discipleship. And if we're doing it with our minds in the right way, we're also doing worship. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, the word Jesus adds to it, and strength. You can do that with fellowship. My men's ministry in my church, God bless their souls, right? You all understand what that means, right? Yeah, bless their little heart. The three guys who started it did so because I put them in a group, and the group gelled, and they love it, and they study, and they thought, man, we're going to share this with other people, and what they do is they gather once a month and eat. That's not a men's ministry. That's a men's meal. There's no reason, though, they can't have fellowship and discipleship when they do it. And if they're not, at best, they're missing an opportunity, and at worst, they're just getting together. I mean, I know men's ministries that go to car shows. OK, what are you doing with that? We're just hanging out. Okay, the Knights of Columbus do that. We're a church. What are we supposed to be doing here? And so I would argue it's worship, discipleship, and fellowship. The more of you can do, the better. Let's talk real quick we try to wrap this up here in the next four minutes or so. I can talk real fast. I'm from the north. You won't understand a word of it, but we can talk really fast. But we're talking about regenerate church membership. Then we're talking about believers' baptism. This one should be a given. If we're talking about believers' baptism, who are we saying it's for? For believers only. Now, admittedly, we baptize a lot of non believers. We buy into their testimony without investigating further. We want to hurry them to the process because we don't want to put them off. I'm not saying anything that's bad, but we baptize a lot of non believers who either prove it down the road by their actions or who themselves one day wake up and go, maybe I'm not a Christian after all. Talk to Justin and Caitlin later about life at CSU. How many kids did you know that came to the conclusion, I probably wasn't saved when? Justin saw it also at seminary. Lots of seminary students going, maybe I need to be re-baptized. Early Baptists did a much better job at this. Who's a believer? Let's make sure we baptize them. Because back then it meant you could get arrested and killed. In the Middle East, Christians probably do better than us at this, because there, in parts of the Middle East, the average lifespan for a new Christian is 90 days. You get baptized, you get dead. And so if you're going to do it, you better believe it. But you also make sure the one you're baptizing believes it, because they might get you dead. And so, historically, this is where we began. We've kind of gotten lost along the way. We believe it's by immersion. That's literally what the word baptism means in the Greek. To immerse. It's all over. Every time you see the word baptized, it's the idea of submerge them completely in the water. And the reason is baptism that way is a picture of the gospel. The person being baptized is giving a testimony not only of their faith, but of the gospel itself to the audience. That's why the words we recite on almost every baptism come from Scripture, as the Paul particularly reminds us in Romans. And also in Colossians, this is what it's a picture of, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The other modes don't work. Sprinkling or pouring might convey washing, but only immersion tells the story. It's a reenactment of the gospel in the same way that the Lord's Supper is meant to be a reenactment of the gospel for the observer. As Baptists, we hold to a distinctive that Luther reintroduced. He got it from Peter but it's the priesthood of all believers. This is over against the Catholic idea of priesthood of only those particular believers. Luther said, no, the Bible says all, that we're all brought into the priesthood. We all have access to God. Now, if you've been a Southern Baptist for more than 20 years, a handful of us fit that category, I'm sure. You remember back in the day when Southern Baptist Convention was as much moderate or liberal as it was conservative? The other side of the coin, the progressives would often talk about the priesthood of the believer. That is not the biblical language, but what they meant was you could interpret the Bible as you wanted to interpret the Bible, and you could do what you wanted to do with it. And so they wanted to emphasize this individualism. You have access to God, therefore you can read this and do with it what you want, But the biblical picture is not this individualism. It's the picture that the priesthood is a community of priests. We're in this together. Yeah, I have individually direct access, but we do it together. We don't go through a priest, but we go together as priests. And more than that even, the nature of the priesthood is always of holiness. I mean, remember the concern the high priest would have had in the Old Testament doing his job. He has a unique job. All the other priests can do certain things. Only the high priest can do one. Once a year, he gets to go into the Holy of Holies. Now think about it. If you're the new high priest, you've never done it. The good chances, if you're the new high priest, it means the old high priest is gone. So all you've got is what Paul or Moses wrote in the scriptures. Here's what he needed to do. Before he could even go in, what did he have to do? He had to offer a sacrifice. He had to do the scapegoat to make sure his sins were covered because what was going to happen if he went in wrongly? He's going to die. He didn't literally wear a rope around his waist, as many of us heard growing up, but they did wear bells on their robe so that you could hear he was still alive in there. Now, I always wondered, okay, so the bell stopped going jingle, jangle, jingle. How do they get him out? Because who wants to be the guy to go in and get him if you hear him thud? No, it's your turn. (laughs) No, you're the new high priest. You go get him, but the picture was holiness. Because when we stand in the presence of God, it's holiness or death. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, "Is because of Christ we can enter into the holy of holies boldly." Yet later on in the same book, he says, "But be careful, because God's a consuming fire." Don't ever forget the double-edged sword. Because of Christ, we can stand in God's presence with confidence, but don't forget, in our sinfulness, we have no reason to believe we can. And so, always make sure you go back through Christ. And so, always about holiness. Real quick, four things, and we're out. Five more blanks. Narrowing that umbrella down, Christians, Protestants, Baptists. Now, a unique brand of Baptists. In my own case, Southern Baptists. There are certain things that people don't really remember anymore. Those who, were gathered in the Baptist church in the 80s, particularly as things were heating up in Southern Baptist world they were actually writing books debating whether or not Baptists were Protestants, and they were debating whether or not Baptists were evangelical. Because as soon as you said yes to both of those categories, that meant Baptists had to believe certain things, and the moderates and the progressives didn't want to believe those things anymore. And so they were arguing, we're not Protestants, or we're not evangelicals. As you read Scripture, as you look at Baptist history, yeah, we are evangelicals. And all that means is we are committed to sharing the gospel with the idea that those who are in the church must be born again. That's the passage of John 3 3. You must be born again. The most fundamental element of being an evangelical is the belief in a regenerate church, believers only. Since we believe that, then we must be evangelistic. That's what we're called to do to share our faith. Those two ought to be easy ones. As Baptists, you all are familiar with this one because you've just been going through this process this summer. As Southern Baptists, we're confessional. We have a confession of faith that we believe everybody in our church ought to agree with. Not on all the little nuances, not on every little possible variation of interpretation. I understand that, right? Right in this room alone, there's probably three or four different views of the end times. But when it comes to the main doctrines, we ought to be in agreement. And if you're not, you ought to be a member somewhere else. Most people today in America, though, don't ever look at a confession of faith before they join a church. They base it on convenience, music, children's ministry, whatever, and have no idea what the church believes. Back to my friend asking, why are so many charismatics coming? Because they don't know what you believe. And as soon as he tells them, they get mad and they leave anyway. So it kind of works either way there. But we're confessional. We believe certain things. We don't think you're going to hell because you disagree necessarily. We just believe these are the truths and we're bold and upfront with it. And one of the great strengths of the Southern Baptist Convention, we're cooperative, which isn't always true of Baptists, right? (laughs) Some of the most uncooperative people you know, you see at church. But I mean, we work together, right? As driving up here yesterday, I passed a caravan of cars with little yellow stickers on the doors. Disaster relief, heading up to Wilmington and New Bern. They don't have to do that. They want to do that. How do they afford to do that? Our tithes and offerings support that. You know, how do we support, you know, 5,000 missionaries overseas and another 5,000 here in North America? Because we work together. Now, I've got several independent Baptists in our church in Charleston, you know, you know, if we if we saw our missionaries face-to-face, people might be more into missions. Yeah, but in your church, you supported two missionaries. We support 10,000. My money goes a lot farther this way than it does your way. Yeah, I wish we were more evangelistic, more mission-minded, but we're cooperative. Southern Baptists sometimes forget that. That's what makes us Southern. That's why we started. It wasn't over slavery. It was over how best to do missions together because the slavery issue divided them on The larger question of how to do that. So, what does it mean to be Baptist here, real quick? We're out of time. We're a couple of minutes over. What does it mean to be Baptist? Biggest sense possible. It means we're committed to biblical doctrine. The rest of it is all secondary. I don't care whether you sing young songs or old songs. I don't care if you got drums or organs. I don't care if you wear a robe or shorts. Do you believe what the Bible says, and does it inform what you do? Beyond that, we can work through the rest of this stuff. The brilliance of the Baptist model has historically been, as long as we're on these things, we can have general Baptists, particular Baptists, Northern Baptists, American Baptists, Independent Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Sovereign Grace Baptist. Somewhere along the way, we forgot what it meant to be Baptist. I was born a Baptist. No, you weren't. You might have been born to be a Baptist, but until you're committed to Scripture and all that it says, you can't be a Baptist. But once you're there, it opens a whole door, a whole world of theological possibility. But it starts with Scripture, because that's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Hopefully somewhat helpful, kind of rambling. We got bogged down a little bit in Reformation history, ask a historian to do this kind of stuff you're going to end up somewhere with dead people. It's all right. I love dead people. They don't talk back. But I'm going to go ahead and pray for you. Justin, you got anything else? Am I it? All right. So I'm going to pray for us. Dismiss you. Thank you again for your time, your patience. If you're missing blanks, come up. You're welcome to get them off my iPad. Otherwise, it's been great to be with you all. Pray for me this week as I teach Baptist theology to a couple of young bucks who are all going to be all eager, and I'm going to be all old and tired. Especially by the end of the week when we go eight hours a day all the way through Friday. And at the end, I'm going to go, you know, guys, just don't commit heresy. We'll be good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,